Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Stone's Touring Party is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Stone's Touring Party. I'm your host, Jordan Runtug. So far over the course of this series, we've examined the madness and socio-political movements that made the Rolling Stones' 1972 North American tour a singular moment in pop culture, one that crystallized the tumult of the era and reflected a crucial shift in the business of rock. But very little attention's been paid to the music, especially the album that the Stones were on the road to promote, their moody double-disc epic Exile on Main Street. To remedy this, I sought the help of my dear friend and colleague, Noel Brown, In addition to being the executive producer of this podcast, he's also a brilliant musician and record producer who's responsible for co-composing much of the music you've heard on this show. Noel put in a call to an old buddy who's a bona fide music legend, David Barbie. On top of co-founding the pioneering post-punk band Mercyland and playing alongside Husker Du's Bob Mould and Sugar, he's also produced enduring classic albums for the likes of Drive-By Truckers, R.E.M., Deer Hunter, and Sunvolt. What's more, Exile on Main Street happens to be one of his all-time favorite records. Noel and I were so excited to throw down with him about all things Stones and learn why Exile on Main Street's been a creative touchstone throughout his entire career. I hope you enjoy our conversation with David Barbie. This show, it's about the Rolling Stones tour of North America in 1972 to promote Exile on Main Street. And over the course of the show, we've talked about the circumstances, the recording of the album and all the craziness of the tour and all the social and political changes happening in the United States at that time. But we haven't really discussed the music yet. We'd like to to remedy that today. Uh, And we know this is an album that means a lot to you. So I guess just to start, what exactly is it about this record that has had such a profound effect on, on your life and your work? Well, I, I love the Stones, and um, it's funny we should be talking about this now because um, two days ago, I had my 60th birthday party at the 40 Watt here in Athens, and I played um, with four of my bands of the last 40 years. No sugar. We, Bob and I talked about this, but we, couldn't, we just couldn't coordinate 
once he couldn't do it, it's like, well, we can't do Sugar without Bob. But uh, anyway, um, these all these other bands played, and I was trying to think of some way to end the night. And so it occurred to me what I wanted to do is cover Rocks Off with um, including horns and percussion oh. and keys, like the whole thing. It's pretty epic. There's about 15 people up there because everybody wants to, As soon as I proposed it, every person in every band was like, oh, my God, I want to play on that. <laughs> and I'm um, discovering that like three of the people that play guitar or bass in the bands played saxophone, trumpet, and trombone was like, well, we got to do this. Yeah. And um, it was pretty phenomenal, really. But um, <laughs> so, yeah, that's funny. We should be talking about this now because just by pure happenstance, that was the last musical thing to emit from my body was me playing the first song on this record. So we're just going <laughs> to take the needle. And from my 60 years of being on the earth, and my 40 years of listening to this record and uh, put it back to um, the beginning. And um, I love, you know, obviously I love the Stones and I love the record. I mean, people my age that make rock and roll records, it's like we all just basically rip off the Stones and the Beatles and Led Zeppelin and Bob Dylan and just stew it up and Neil Young, you know, about those five, you kind of got it and you stew it up your own way. Add like a little dash of Jimi Hendrix in there maybe. Um you know, sp uh, sprinkle punk rock to taste. And um, it, it's, so my awareness of the record as a child until getting a copy of the actual album in college is um, sprinkled. Like, um, Tumble Dice was a hit. Like, I knew the song. I didn't have any idea what it was called or any idea of what the words were because, like, to me... <laughs> I love the mix of Exile on the Main Street because the vocals are loud but not clear. <laughs> it's um, It could mean virtually anything to you. Um, then, like, all through the 70s, um, there's a comp, through the 60s and 70s, really, but especially probably starting in about the mid-60s, there was, um, it was really common for artists to have multiple greatest hits packages because it's a way for the record labels to repackage and sell it a second time it is a way to take the singles that weren't on albums. I mean, the Stones, you know, it's like Jumpin' Jack Flash was not deemed worthy of inclusion on <laughs> Beggar's Banquet because, well, that old thing, it's already been out. <laughs> uh, Honky Tonk Women was not included on Let It Bleed because, you know, that who needs that old thing? It's already been released. And the funny thing about a band now that had, even if they were lucky enough to have written, written one song like either of those, to actually just say, yeah, we're not putting that on the album. It wouldn't happen. But the greatest hits package is the other thing is it was able to market to more casual consumers and to kids. Because an album, if you bought a copy of, if you wanted to get all, say, the Rolling Stones hits of like the first half of the 1970s when I was a school-age child, you would have to buy, you know, four, five, six albums at, you know, six or for a double, maybe like 10 or $12 a piece. And, you know, I probably got like, you know, 25 cents a week allowance or you could buy greatest hits package. And so, um, nobody was a more shameless repackager of greatest hits <laughs> collections than the Rolling Stones. who, starting with big hits, high tides and green grass in 1966, which is awesome. Yeah. Okay. So we got one in 66. That'll cover us for a while. Well, until 69, cause then we're going to release through the past dark darkly. That'll last a while. Yeah. Maybe two years this time. Cause like by 71, we'll release hot rocks. And then in uh, 75, 
it's made in the shade. So in like a 10-year period, they've got four greatest hits albums already. But so Made in the Shade was one that I had. And it had little slices off of the post, basically the first few years of Rolling Stones records, once they had control over their own master recordings. Because, of course, Alan Klein owns every master recording <laughs> up until uh, there's probably a whole separate podcast about the Alan Klein's involvement <laughs> with the Rolling Stones. Great book about it, too. But um, so those, you know, four albums that had been released, Sticky Fingers and Exile and Goat's Head Soup and It's Only Rock and Roll, you, you know, pick two, three songs off each record and, man, you've really got something. So Tumbling Dice, Rip This Joint, and Happy were all on Made in the Shade. So it was like a school-age kid, I had those. And then occasionally I would hear these other ones, you know, on the radio or whatever, um, like All Down the Line or Rocks Off. And when I was a freshman at Georgia, I was in my dorm room and heard this music blasting out of the room below me. Went down there, banged on the door. These guys opened up, you know, bong smoke wafting out. <laughs> One of them, a highly successful uh, attorney right now. Um, <laughs> name will be uh, concealed to protect the semi-innocent. Of course. But... Uh, as opposed to th I was going to, as opposed to yelling them, it's like, Hey, turn your music down. I was like, what album is this song on? Because like, I didn't even know rocks off was called rocks off. I just knew that it was a stone song that went, you know, it was hear it on the radio, hear it in the parking lot. And, uh, but we, you know, had my childhood, you know, buying albums here and there. And had a few albums, but like it's not, you know, Pitchfork and Brooklyn Vegan. Like it's not a thing. <laughs> and um, it's, uh, and so they were like, oh, yeah. And for some reason, it's weird because it's like every kid I knew had, there's some albums that every kid I knew had in my neighborhood. We all had Abbey Road, we all had Let It Bleed, and we all had um, like Zeppelin II. But, like, there's other weird pockets. Like, very few had Zeppelin three, And very few... There's just, like, weird albums, like, here and there that, like, some neighborhood, some older brother was into some record and had some, but not all. So, um, it was just, like, they were, like, yeah, do you want to borrow it? And I was, like, yes. And then I was, like, <laughs> oh, my God. Even, like, all the deep cuts... And so what I really started getting into around that time was, I mean, I'd heard, you know, Tumbling Dice probably about as many times as I heard Freebird or Stairway to Heaven. So it's like, um, I, I wasn't like, I want this so I can listen to the songs I know. It's just like, I found myself like obsessing over like Soul Survivor or Torn and Frayed or something. And, um, you know, it was probably about a couple of days before I went out and bought, like, a, you know, at first I recorded, taped theirs at my own home cassette, and then it's like, I just need to buy a record of this. So it's like, I knew the most, I knew a lot of it just from, like, other people's records, uh, hearing things, parties and things, but never just had a copy of it. And it's more a matter of the reality of economics of being a kid in the 70s. It's like, yeah, dude, you get paid two sixty five an hour for working at Taco Bell. 
And um, I came from a family that was of the belief that there's no scholarships for retirement, son. You better get to saving your money up and uh, <laughs> like to go to school or live or whatever, you know, so um, which was actually better for me than having mm. a bunch of stuff handed to me, I think anyway. But um, it's uh, so, yeah, that's my kind of like slow dive into it. And it's one of those things are just albums in my life like this, where the more I listen to it, the more I listen to it. There's some you listen to it a few times and are like, man, that's great. I got it. <laughs> um, there's um, other things um, that are just so dense and it, I think this is true of double albums in generally, um, Exile on Main Street, Physical Graffiti, Blonde on Blonde, Double Nickels and the Dime. These are all things that I can listen that just like kind of don't grow old because there's just so much. And it just takes a while to really go through it. And you might um, be in a while where it's like, I'm really, you know, I'm just into side three right now um i'm just and so yeah it's a grower the other thing about exile is that it's not like the immediate impact of hit 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 it's just one of those growers because there's so many deep cuts the sound of it the vibe of it and then once you know the story behind it too yeah it just it just like sucked me in like, um, you know, there's things in my life that do, and I will say this about me in general. I've had other people point this out to me before, whatever I'm into, I really get into it <laughs> and me and exile on main street absolutely was a thing that, uh, yeah, it's like a, it's like eating at like my favorite local taco place or <laughs> like some kind of jeans I like to wear. That's like, yeah, I just don't get tired of it. Well, you, you mentioned, you know, the density of it. And I think that speaks to, you know, the, the content, the songs, yeah. but also the sound. I mean, yeah. it is, it sounds different than other records. And when you get into the story of how it was made, it's understandable why that's the case. Obviously they did overdubs and, you know, fancier studios, but it was a very kind of DIY you know, big budget DIY, the big DIY, budget nonetheless, DIY yeah. record that was made in a basement. Um, did you immediately clock that this didn't sound like other records that you knew that there was something mm. in there? Were you thinking about production yet at this point? Or was it kind of just like secondary to like these songs rip? Um, man, that's a good question. I don't know. Um, you know, I've, have been recording things, my bands, like the oldest recording I have of me and other kids playing music goes back to being about 10 years old. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking about production. I was always in the studio with my parents and stuff, but I, um, I don't know that I thought consciously about, oh, I love how they rolled a little three K off the guitars here or, well, sure. um, it just is like the way it sounds is just a way that sounds right. Like mm -hmm. I've been wearing uh, regular, uh, just like regular Levi's jeans that I only now know the number of because for years those were just known as jeans. And now, of course, it's, they've got like a billion different kinds, right? If I were to go into a store and put on like a modern pair of like slim fit jeans, it would be like, what the fuck are these things? You know, it's like, who knows? It's just like a, that sound of that record is just a thing that's like, uh, I realized that I'm, I'm not really much of a clothes horse. I realized this is my second attire reference that I've made in this, but 
Um, <laughs> it's um, the sound of it just over time, I think, kind of seeps in. But I'll tell you, one of the things that's so different about it than other Rolling Stones records is this is m- clearly a Keith Richards production. Um, that the 60s records, you know, Lou Goldham definitely in charge. The first couple of Jimmy Miller things, it's like, it's like, this is a different take. And, uh, but, um, I mean, obviously you guys, as much as me have read the books and know the stories. And I also had the incredible experience of having, um, Stanley Booth live in Athens for about six months or so, maybe ah, five, eight years ago, he was donating some stuff to the UGA library. And, uh, Stanley, even in his seventies, uh, a delightful guy, like, uh, a witty, interesting, uh, and also kind of a man about town. And, uh, <laughs> I would, uh, we really hit it off. And, um, he told me a bunch of great stuff just about hanging out with them. And, uh, uh, but yeah, to me, just like the sound of it is like, this is a Keith record. Like Mick is, I mean, all this is like fan knowledge to me, you know, it's not like they've, you know, uh, that in my two and a half minute meeting with Mick Jagger about five years ago that we like discussed this in detail. <laughs> in fact, I didn't say anything about the stones to him. It was just like, I'm, I'm not doing that. We're just going to have a little chit chat, but, um, it's, uh, it, you know, but just what you know about the the band at the time is that like. Mick has just gotten married to Bianca. He's kind of off doing that. Um, uh, and nobody else really has a vote. I'm sure that Charlie would if he wanted to rest his soul. But uh, yeah, it's uh, so like this is a Keith record, man. It just seems like it's all driven by that. And um, the tangle with uh, Keith and Mick Taylor, the Graham Parsons hangout influence, you know, by now he's an icon then he's like a young hotshot you know and the burrito brothers and those and i guess that i don't i don't think like grievous angel or gp are out yet but um they're a little out they're like 73 74 maybe but um yeah it's just got its own kind of stew it's produced by jimmy miller but now he's kind of living like the band it's all kind of <laughs> basically um every peripheral person involved other than the other band members, seems to have just been sucked into Keith World. Um, Mick Taylor certainly sucked into Keith World. Mick Jagger, he's Mick Jagger. He is his own thing, and he and Keith are their own thing. But, like, he's, you know, doing his thing as he's going to do it. Uh, But really, it's just like Jimmy, all the engineers, all the hangers-on, everybody's in Keith World. When you read about, because I've read all the books you've talked about on the episodes, but I've, I've read all that, too. And uh, which was cool, just like listening to this and being like, oh, yeah, somebody else also reads all of these books. <laughs> um, yeah, I've probably spent my adult life trying to recreate with something that's almost as good as that. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. 
every week we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. In 2023, it's almost become a shorthand for a band to do their exile, you know, a long, sprawling mood piece. Right. And it's fascinating to look back on the contemporary reviews of of when Exile came out and see how confused people were by it. Yeah. And I I mean, I guess this is partially because, you know, it's not... It's... I, it's a hard album to get to know, I found. and But like yeah. you said, it is a grower. But I mean, it, that's what I love reading the first blush reviews from some of these people having listened to it, you know, a couple times only and basically say, you know, what is this dark, unhappy place that the Stones are bringing us to? What mm-hmm. is going on? It's murky. The vocals aren't loud enough. Um, it's too long. There's too much on it. It'd be a better record if it was edited. Yeah, you read contemporary reviews. There's a few people that like got how I mean that re- loved it right away, but there's a lot of. But it's not an instant classic. It's funny. It's like um, I got into uh, a while back. I was curious, like, okay, you j- like reading reviews of old records. Like, there's certain records now that we all just acknowledge as classics. 
how were they perceived at the time? Read a review of Neil Young, Time Fades Away from when it came out, and then read like the Pitchfork glowing review of the reissue like a year ago. And it's like, oh man, all it needed was to be like 48 years older and people would like finally appreciate it for what it is. And um, yeah, there's, it's interesting. You read contemporary reviews of Exile and it's like not universally hailed. It's only over time that it became universally recognized at the time. I mean, there's some people that got it right away, but um, the, yeah, but it's, it's a real grower. I mean, it's one of those records that would have been better if it was, if it was released to the press like a year early. Why do you think that is though? Like, what is it about it that was maybe ahead of its time isn't even the right way of describing it. Do you think there was intent with that or was it just the product of like a kind of perfect storm of chaos and just like, you know, the whole story behind it, it yielded this result that wasn't really repeatable. I'm just wondering like, why has it become, you know, in hindsight, this kind of like juggernaut? You can only look at, decisions that were made based on the knowledge that the person that made the decision had at hmm. the time, right? Like there are, um, that you can march backwards into history and find all kinds of reasons why the uh, nuclear bomb should not have been dropped. But we didn't have that information or not. We, I wasn't born yet, but they didn't have that, a lot of that information at the time. It's a huge unknown. Um, there are all kinds of things that when it, someone encounters something new the first time is just so alien to them. And if you think about, um, the stones, like the last, uh, thing that people had heard from the stones had been brown sugar, a number one hit record. Um, and just, and a, and a different, you know, and it was just like, kind of, it seems to me like a, you know, just like uplifting feeling track. In, in spite of the subject matter. I mean, as a child, I thought I was seven years old. I thought that brown sugar was about kids who stayed up all night and waited until just after midnight when the grownups go to sleep and then eat candy all night long, like chocolate, you know, brown sugar. And uh, it's not about that. But uh, when I was seven and it was a hit record and my mother would say, that song is vulgar. And I was like, oh, vulgar means she doesn't want the children to stay up until after midnight and eat Hershey's bars all night long. She didn't that either, but that's not, again, what it's about. But, um, but anyway, but it had this massive hit record. And then they also like the moving wild horses had come out and, um, it's the seventies. The stones are no longer drug outlaws. We're a couple of years past Altamont and it's, they're just huge stars. And, uh, so there's that, but if you think about like popular music at the time, the Beatles have broken up and now it gives way for somebody else to ascend. And it's a little like Neil releasing tonight's the night or time fades away or something where fans are just like, what happened to like <laughs> harvest? And with, uh, exile, I just, I mean, I think that it's, it's just so, it's just not what people were expecting out of, um, uh, of an album at that time. And, um, so like what we know that's happened since it's like, it totally makes sense in the progression of things. Um, music by other people, it totally makes sense in the progression of things. And in some ways the stones are ahead of their time. Um, 
not just with having the vocals buried in a murky mix or something, even though I think the mix is, is perfect. Don't get me wrong, but, uh, it's, um, but in terms of this is in front of Watergate, this is in front of, uh, I mean, this isn't all those, you know, it's, it's in front of the U S you know, pulling out of Vietnam. I mean, it's like, um, and there's a lot of records in the mid seventies, you know, there's not the economic, you know, downturn of the, you know, is in front of the Arab oil embargo, a lot of huge cultural and economic things that happened. And there's a lot of records that are, were made in response to that. But, um, like this, the stones thing, it just happened. It's just, but there just weren't that many records like that at the time. But also, like, all that political stuff doesn't really read to me as a listener. It's less important. Oh, it's not part but, of it. It's, I'm yeah. saying that's not part of it, but, like, these, like, downward feeling, down feeling records by the mid-70s were very common. But, like, in 1972, none of that existed. And so, a and record, I guess they had the blank check ability to make that record because they had already proven themselves and had all of these hits. And so they were, they, you know, they they were allowed to go into a basement and make a murky, weird record, and nobody shut them down. It's so funny that you, you mentioned the the mix and and the you know vocals being low. Yeah. You know, in the podcast, we talk about how they you know talked to radio stations and had them play the mixes for them so they could listen to it in the car because that was like one of the only ways to do it. I think it was. Yeah. Um, uh, Barry Gordy would like just, you know, wire up a car speaker, you know, in their conference room. But like the Stones literally had DJs just they would like ply them with drugs. I guess their PR team would and they would just play whole records and they'd listen to it in their limo. And they fussed and sweated and obsessed over these mixes. And it still ends up not sounding like a traditional rock record of the time. What where do you think that aesthetic came from? Like, do you think they knew consciously we're making this weird, dark record? The tone needs to match the tone of the content of the songs. Like as a producer, like where does that at what stage does that happen? Is it conscious or is it just this is what we ended up with? Now we have to lean into this as hard as we can. I mean, there's two things that could you know, possibly be the case here. One is I get where you're coming from that sometimes you're working on something that's like, we want the tone to match the music, right? We want a darker, you know, it's like, if it was like a really bright, hyper compressed Nick Drake album, it wouldn't make any sense to anybody. Um, uh, but really to me, what I see in the studio, you know, after years and years and years and thousands, tens of hundreds of thousands of hours maybe doing this is that you're just in it and just kind of make it what it is. And, um, it's, uh, um, I'm way past like going out to the car and listening to something. It's like, I know what it sounds like in a control room. I mean, I just listen to other things on the speakers to kind of get my head wrapped around it a little bit, but, um, I just think you're just in it and just make it what it is. And, uh, it's funny because sometimes in the process of doing that, um, you come out later and realize, are these vocals loud enough or is the bass too loud or something? And sometimes it is and you got to go back and do it again. But other times it's like, that's just what it is. And it's like if you, um, I mean, personal experience, like when I'm not sure about a mix, I'll listen then compared to other things or when somebody else isn't sure about a mix i was like okay tell me 
four songs that you love that you wish this sounded like. And they'll tell me four things and we'll listen to all four in a row and they'll realize, oh yeah, none of them actually sound alike. I was like, yeah. Anything that's any good doesn't sound like anything else. It's its own thing. Anything that sounds like something else is like being the, you know, nobody remembers the second guy to walk on the moon. And so it's, uh, it, I mean, to me, it's like, if you're doing any, making any great piece of art, it is gotta be its own thing. And maybe that's what I like about exile, you know, both the content and the sound is it's its own thing. There's no, when you hear one of those songs, there's no doubt which Stones album it's from. And it was all, you know, we talked about at the beginning, it's all recorded, not in a traditional studio, the room things are recorded in. I mean, there's a lot of work on the back end done at sunset. We know that. Um, but the primary parts of it being tracked down there in the basement, um, yeah, it's got to have an effect on it. I am nowhere, I, I'm not well-versed in any sense about the finer points of recording, but I wanted to talk to you more about just how challenging it was to get mm. anything that sounded halfway decent mm. in a basement of a French villa. Like, how oh man, I've done this kind of thing so many times, I can tell you all about the challenges of it. Um. There was Sunvolt Wide String Tremolo, which I recorded in their practice space, which was um, a warehouse that shared a building with some kind of wood shop because we couldn't start until the evening because we had to let all the glue fumes die down before we could work. Um, there was, um, I took a bunch of gear into there and then had a bunch of stuff that they had in their space and just kind of cobbled it together. There was um, the first Harvey Milk album, which I made in somebody's house on a digital eight track with a $400 portable console and then like three good mic pre's and a couple of good mics and just made it work because that's what they have, the budget they had and that's what they wanted to do. There is Bloodkin Raven Beauties, which I am. Um, rented a mobile truck and went to the basement of a friend of the bands. Uh, and, uh, they, um, they wanted to make a record like exile and mainstream. We had a mobile truck. We had, um, we didn't work until like nighttime. We worked into the middle of the night and, uh, there, and then of course I've mi did not record, but mixed drive by trucker Southern rock opera, which was made with a bunch of, you know, the, whatever they could afford to, put in some old warehouse. So I've done this a ton of times. The process of making that work, even if you've got great engineers, but by now we, but we have to go back and remember, it's like at the time, Andy Johns is not this veteran. <laughs> he's like a, a young guy who's a great engineer and has worked on huge records and he's the real deal. But, but it's not like you hear Andy Johns or Glenn or um, any of these older producer guys talk about, you know, and it's like they're these weathered old men of, you know, of, you know, sands of time. But, uh, at the time they're like guys, young guys in their twenties who were like, it's like, okay, we are, we've got microphones. We've got a mic box. We've got a snake where the snake runs out of the truck, the truck, there's another box that we take there and plug into the gear, plug out of the, you know, gain input gain. And then out of that into the tape machines. Um, and then out of the tape machines into some sort of playback system. And we have to be able to listen to it in the house too, because they want to be able to do that. And, um, does the electrical power that we have the truck wired for match the French electrical power that's in the basement? 
just years of a huge house being on the water that was designed to power like chandeliers and a stove and not a recording equipment and amplifiers. Is the power system overtaxed? Are there additional ground hums? Is there uh, RF interference that gets into the signal? Wait, channel eight's not working right now. Hang on. Let me get out of the truck, unplug some wires, walk down the hill, walk into the house, go in the basement, tell them they have to stop, unplug something there, you know, be back and forth. There's no cell phones. We're not, or maybe they have a walkie talkie or something. I don't know. But um, what I'm getting at here is it's not just, there was a house, there was a truck. And I mean, there's literally a, so many cue points where something can go wrong. It's a real start and stop progress, the a process. And the other thing that is kind of not addressed that much because there's so much romance behind this record, deservedly so, is the fact that the people, the engineers that work on these records are human beings who need to eat and sleep and take a walk and have a life outside of waiting on people to show up to work at midnight. And I can tell you making these kind of records like this, there's a lot of time where it's just like, I'm there a few hours before anybody else gets there and I'll be there after everybody is done. And um, I'm like one of the animatronic uh, musicians at Chuck E. Cheese, except the engineer version where it's like, I'm ready, I'm on my game and then whatever. It's like, that's just the job. And having been, you know, a musician myself for so long, I understand that like everybody will play better, will be more creative if the engineer and the gear is an invisible part of the process. If you don't think about it, like here in the studios, like when I'm training young people, it's like the wires in here, the mic cables always run this way. The sound baffles are always put up this way. You know, hey, where'd you put those headphones? Is the guitar player right-handed or left-handed? Well, I don't know. Well, you should have thought about that because now the neck of their guitar is hitting their headphone box. Put it on the other side. You, you know, you learn every time. It's like, how can I be invisible where people don't even, they're, all they're thinking about is playing music. So the technical challenges are probably very real in an environment like this, but it would be boring in a book for the general public to talk about the electrical power standards of, you know, coastal France in the early 1970s. But I guarantee you it's not like some like transformer isolated. And they took a power t tap off of uh, like the, the railroad or something like yep. that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I read the books. I'm a listener of the podcast. It's insane. I know this. So, yeah, Ill so, illegal, highly dangerous. Probably, yeah, so right? illegal yeah. and dangerous. So yeah, it's like there's um, tremendous technical challenges to making it. So at the moment that everybody has finished their decadent meal, wine, and uh, mind-altering, uh, creativity-enhancing, we hope substances. Um, it's like you just have every it, all that shit just has to work. So. Um, yeah, it's um, it would have been easier to do it in a studio, but it's a better record the way they exactly the way they did it. I heard a really funny uh, Instagram video from John Mayer, who I'm not the hugest fan of, but like he's a great guitarist and his stuff with the Dead is fantastic, and he's obviously a bit of a workhorse. And he said the biggest creativity killer is the dreaded dinner, the dinner. Oh yeah, right. So you're you're, you're working, things aren't happening. Okay, you take a break and now things are popping and it's about four o'clock and you know it's going to take like four hours to really harness this energy. 
but then the dreaded dinner. And this was built in. This is Keith, the most chaotic yeah. host. The dinner was more important to him than the record. How, with that being the case, did they manage to harness that creativity and make such a magical piece of work? It just seems impossible. It seems, and, and your, your, your whole point about the invisibility of the, you know, the engineers, that seems impossible. It's almost like they were running a surveillance detail on this basement. And somehow it worked. I just don't get it. It's wild to me. As a, as a producer, knowing the challenges, even in a you know accessible studio situation that's controlled, that you, you have control of and you know where everything is, how could they have possibly gotten what they got? Well, with all due respect to John Mayer, um, I do want to say like in a straight fight between the recorded catalog of John Mayer and Keith Richards, I'm putting my money on Keith. Um, <laughs> There are millions and millions of people who would disagree. Um, at the end of the podcast, we can give my mailing address if you <laughs> care to send me an angry letter about that, but I don't care. Um, the but but the other thing is is I think that with Keith, you know, who I've never met, don't know him, just know him through his music. But uh, it's less about the dinner and more about the vibe. And uh, you know, Exile Main Street is just a vibe. And all these great records I've referenced that are like these grower records are a vibe, man. They're all a, uh, they're not like other things. And with Keith, it's like, yeah, the dinner, the celebration, all the, the, the <laughs> yeah, it's, um, you do that stuff on other records and it's going to be a bummer. And you're right, Noel, it's going to be like, oh my God, it is one step forward, two steps back. But for some reason, it you know, it just all works. It's Keith's record. It's his vibe. I'm somebody who's never written a song in their lives, let alone produced a session or overseen a recording. But I'm fascinated by the role that problem solving plays in music and making music. There was a great interview that Paul Simon gave to Dick Cavett in the 70s, where he plays a semi-completed, I think it's still crazy after all these years. And he gets to the point where he stopped writing and he goes through all the different choices and options that he could take and mm -hmm. it's so interesting he breaks it down like a logic puzzle and i had never to me songs are sorcery they just come out of you know thin air right. from people from these beings yeah, yeah. who are capable of, of conjuring that up it's it, and i that was just so fascinating to me to see them i mean i guess get back and the beatles stuff was sort of a similar thing where you see the problems that they're up against i'm just curious how much of that is normal how much of making music is problem solving Man, I think, you know, it's a, it's a split that there's some of it that really is this. I mean, I've worked with artists who have, um, played me. I mean, the, like the song is like a fit of inspiration for myself. I know there's some that are just simply, um, it just comes out like the first time you sit down and play it or sing it. It's like, oh man, change like two words and you got this. I mean, it's like a finished thing at an artist who, um, a great song and he told me that he dreamed about another artist with whom me and this guy are both friends was singing this song at a festival and then he woke up and remembered the song and then went through the guy's catalog and realized no 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 I just dreamed this song and uh, it's interesting because it kind of sounds a bit like the other guy and um it's uh um but then the other thing is like yeah, the problem-solving aspect of how do we get out of this song? I mean, on Exile on Main Street, uh, 
you know, the overwhelming percentage of the songs all fade out. <laughs> there's not a way out. You know, I mean, there's some, there's a couple that do that end, but it's true of, like a lot of their catalog anyway. Um, Ooh, yeah. There's a few famous ones that end, Brown Sugar, uh, um, Can't You Hear Me Knocking, uh, that actually end, um, Shattered ends. But if you think about the end of most of the Stones' big hits, most of them fade out. And, uh, it, and Exile certainly is like a classic, like, fade-out album. And uh, so that's one way to solve a problem is, well, we don't have an ending. Well, fade it, you know, Andy Glenn faded out. <laughs> and uh, the other is Keith having this wealth of music and then, hey, Mick, write some lyrics for this. So, um, yeah, and there are things where it's just like trying to find out, like, this song could go one way. And, and Get Back was an incredible view of people doing that. Um, especially like the song Get Back, where it's going to be like a protest song. And then you, as soon as you hear it, it's a little cringy. And it's like, oh, thank God they didn't do that with it. And uh, But like a great artist, you know, and in the case of Exile, certainly it's like, what they, how they solved it turned out to be the right way. Um, it's funny. There's a, there's a, you hear outtakes of things that usually aren't as good. There's one exile outtake, uh, alternate version that, um, uh, I think might, I like, I might like more than the record version, which, um, I've got some bootleg of like some alternate take of stop breaking down that is just fucking awesome it's just like a little rougher that is it though it needs to be than the other one i talked to somebody else who has a copy of the same bootleg and they're both like god that one thing is so good but uh it's in but what i'm but in general it's not radically different than the other what i'm saying is that in general when you listen to the outtakes of great artists um you realize no they did it right at the, at the time it's like yeah and it's funny there's not outtakes in other mediums it's like there's not <laughs> um like there's not like an alternate Mona Lisa out there that everybody says is better than the real one, but that's rock bands for you. That's what I find so interesting. I'm a huge Beatles guy and I love the anthologies, uh, all, all three double discs for that reason. I mean, hearing all the different versions of, um, you know, stuff like I'm looking through you where they did a completely different and on the new, um, the new revolver box set from last year, they had like a, a, a sounds like something from nuggets, like a garage band version of God, to get into my life pre horn section. And it's so good. It's, but I mean, but you understand, Oh yeah, you need that. You need that insane. Like where you're shoving the mics down the bells of the trumpets and everything to get that in your face stack sound. But yeah, it's fascinating to see the, I don't want to call them missteps, but the, the detours, if you will, before they, they landed on the idea that, you know, 99% of the time was the right one. Yeah. I, I, you know, as a kid used to wonder what would happen if Dorothy had gone down the other road. That's well, and the whole, the, the whole fade out thing too, makes me think that likely probably on other records of theirs, but this one in particular, these were jams, right? Yeah. Like, can you talk about that? How, how you harness those kinds of jams and figure out which one's the right one and like the one that's going to give you the best chance of like, you know, making it really shine with overdubs. Like, you know, this is what you would call, I guess, basic tracks. 
But yeah. like if they're jams and you're writing it on the fly, how do you know when to stop? I guess it's a key thing, but I'm just, you know, from your perspective as a producer, what, how is that process of making a record different from coming in where everyone's got their parts, everything's ready to go, everyone knows what they're doing, and that's the record? The, the building a record from jams is, can be great if you've got, if you've got, you know, a great lyricist, you know, to turn it kind of, you know, make it into something. But as far as like that kind of thing, making decisions is that, um, I don't, I think nobody probably has done this more than the stones that I know of because, um, some girls, emotional rescue and tattoo, you all seem to have been like, to some degree contain a lot of like jams that something was gone back and added to later on. There's this other great bootleg called sympathy for the disco that has a bunch of like mid seventies, like dirty kind of dance jam stones playing these like dirty kind of danceable jams in the studio. A lot of which turn into miss you and emotional rescue and dance part two and all these things. But it's interesting because you hear this thing and it's like, oh man, they had like all these jams and managed to like pluck a few songs out of them. And other ones are just, just that, just a jam with. So um, to answer your question, Noel, I think that it's um, a process of just knowing, I mean, it's a thing of like, I mean, it's like picking which cabinet handles you want in your kitchen. It's just like, yeah, we, we like these, we vibe out with these. And uh, let's try to make something with these songs and see what see where we get with this. Or you're playing things and your singer is kind of coming up with something or, you know, you've got, who knows, you've got Bobby Keys and Jim Price sitting around and they go, what if we, you know, added a little thing on it? Just, it just makes it a more collaborative experience. And as long as you can find your way to a song through that, um, you... Uh, you know, you've really got something. It's a much more jazz approach. It's much more bebop approach than mainstream pop music. It's interesting. It's like a bebop approach that was like crafted into uh, um, wildly popular music via decadent meals and heroin. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, 
acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. The other thing that blows my mind is in a post Pro Tools world that this was all done to tape. I think 16 track in the mobile studio, I think. Yes, the greatest format of all time. You've said that in an interview that working to tape is actually the fastest way to work. And I wanted to ask no you more about that. That was interesting to me. It's the fastest way to work because you run out of options. I mean, you know, Wizard of Oz, you know, I just made, you know, said, what if she picked the other road? What if there was like 16 or 20 or 100 yellow brick roads? It's, uh, it's, I mean, Pro Tools, digital recording is amazing. It offers unlimited possibilities. It um, offers a world of creative opportunities that simply didn't exist 50 years ago. However, creatively, it also if you live in a world of command Z, you constantly can undo. You can always go backwards. You can fix anything easily. You can make it sound like somebody can almost play their instrument. <laughs> and when you do it on tape, there's a few factors at work. Now, of course, you can edit with a razor blade. I still do this. I mean, I do work on Pro Tools, too. We have both here, but I still do razor blade editing. Did some not too long ago with somebody. Um, there is, um, but it, in a, but outside of, like, the sound of the tape, which is a thing that people, you know, when they think about tape, they think about the sound differences. It kind of romanticizes it. And it is a great sound, much like a, 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 an Alfred Hitchcock movie in the 50s made in CinemaScope. just looks different, you know? It's not reality. It just looks great. It's art. Real in that, you know, perception is reality. You know, when you're taking in some artistic work, anyway. Um, but I mean, my driver's license picture doesn't look like a Renoir, and but you know where I'm going with that. Um, 
but <laughs> the create, but the reason I say tape is faster is that you can't just hit command Z all the time. You can't just say, okay, that's the sax solo. Great. Can I keep and do another one? Sure. Can I keep and do another one? Sure. How about if I do like 80 of these and you like pick through it and make one? I know how to do that. And that sucks. <laughs> What's great is when somebody does something once and you're just like, wow. Okay. Okay. Listen to that. And they come in here, they listen to it and say, man, is it? could I do one more of that and just like see, and it's, and if you, if the answer is like, man, we're out of tracks, we can do it, but we got to erase something. And then the decision is, can I top it or not? And basically what it does is it inspires real time <laughs> performance because you have to. And I, it is like people who make records now where, Hey, we're going to, I mean, this works for some records, but for a lot of records, it is, um, Hey, we're just going to go and like record the drums. And so what you've got now is three or four other people and they're playing a part, but they're not really trying because, uh, they, that's not their keeper part. And the drummer can't really do too much because they're not exactly sure what they're going to be playing with later on. And if they screw up, the engineer can just like move something around and just make it work. And I mean, that's all fine and good. There's people that make amazing records like that. But I find that in some cases, what you do is you wind up where, um, you can be long on perfection, but awfully short on inspiration and working in tape world. It's, um, all about getting an inspired take because we got one track left to do this and it's going to be like right now, or, Hey, uh, we're going to do some, where three of us are going to sing backup vocals. Okay. Um, nowadays you might have each person go do their part separately and put them on different tracks and you can blend it later and you can auto tune it and you can fix it. No, no, no. You're going to go stand. The two of you are going to stand in front of one microphone of the bottle of old granddad. And, uh, I saw somebody drinking some old granddad the other day. And when I saw, um, I, uh, saw him, I was like, oh man, the liquor of exile on main street. Excellent choice. Um, I will have you know this was like the uh this was like at a tailgate before like a Georgia football game and I was like, Man, you're getting channeling your inner Mick and Keith. Fortunately the person I was hanging out with understood where I was coming from. And uh but um yeah, but that's kind of the, that's my theory on this is that it forces it forces people just to be on their game. If I was to say there's a curve outside my studio here and it's, you know, about you know, six inches wide, right? Whatever the legal curb width is, let's call it six inches wide and said, Hey, walk down that thing. And you're like four inches above the ground. You just walk right down there. You wouldn't even think twice about it. We'd just have a little chit chat while you're doing it. If that same thing was 30 feet in the air, <laughs> it's a different mindset to walk down it. You really don't want to slip up. In my opinion, we could also have like thousands of angry letters about that. Everybody's got an opinion, <laughs> but that's mine. You know, Athens is a very special place to me and um, obviously to you and lots of people who are huge fans of, of music, indie, indie rock, whatever you want to call it. Uh, there's an incredible documentary that just came out about the Elephant Six uh, recording company, um, some of whom members of that group have recorded at your studio. And it's interesting when you talk about 
groups or collectives or artists that that really go hard into the whole tape thing and mm -hmm. you know the idea of you have oh we're out of tracks you have to bounce it down like the beatles i think only had four for some of their records and then eight a little bit later yeah, four but to get the, the level of depth and stacked sounds they had to dub things from one reel to another you know bounce things destructively meaning that you lost what was on there i always wondered if they made copies but that's a, a question for maybe a nerdier uh, conversation but the elephant six documentary to me was one of the best kind of i don't know artifacts like of pure creativity um using the technology to your advantage as a creative tool rather than like a crutch and i think that's something that is really coming around more even certain like audio interfaces like you know universal audio makes the most popular audio interface around now the apollo and various versions of that but built within that there is a kind of finite way like the the way that the thing processes the plugins that this company makes it's a company that's been making hardware you know um audio outboard audio studio gear for generations you can only use so many and then you run out of processing power and there's something to that that i think is inspiring where it's like i know i can't have 50 of these i know i can't have in you know indefinite numbers of these so it does feel like there's almost a backlash maybe not a backlash but a return to that type of thinking that you're describing um, in modern production. Obviously, it's a very rich and varied world out there in terms of what kind of music there is, but can you talk a little bit about how maybe the aesthetic or the kind of inspiration of an Exile on Main Street type record is now maybe a little bit more in the forefront in terms of the way people are making records and maybe limitations are a good thing? Um, yeah, I think it does. I mean, I think it has, certainly has, um, an influence. I think that mostly like things like working, like records like Exile Major, everybody wants to make records like that. I mean, not everybody, but like rock bands. It's like they want to make records like these old records. And um, I think a lot of people though don't realize the benefits of limitations until they experience it. Um, and I just had a conversation with, an artist who has made a few records so far and their records are good. Their songs are good, but it's a little more modern and sterile, I think, than they want it to be. Their, their description of their own recordings. And, um, I've been encouraging them to, it's like, you should try doing this thing on a tape machine where you can, where it's like, you just can't sterilize it. It's just not one of the options, you know? And, um, and it's funny because they want to do it, but they're also uh, a little like, well, we like to be able to fix everything. I was like, well, you know, you can't be a vegetarian that eats steak. I mean, you're going to have to pick. You can, you know, it's, <laughs> um, you don't want to be, uh, <laughs> you just have to buy in and accept the reality of it. That um, you just have to be right into the reality um, that in a rock and roll records, Sometimes the wrong thing is the right thing. <laughs> Do you feel that Exile impacted you more as a, as a producer or a songwriter? As a producer. And the reason is that um, as a songwriter, I want to write from my own inspiration, number one. Number two, every time in my life that I've tried to write a song that 
would be like a Rolling Stone song or a Beatles song, especially when you're young and you have like really obvious influences. Um, I listen to those songs now and just all I hear is like, this is like if The Clash made their worst song of all time. This song that I just wrote is like a song that would not be on Exile on Main Street if it had like 40 songs. Because again, it's like you're, it's not, you know, it, you, you're trying, you're aping somebody else's stuff. Um, but as a producer, yeah, because um, of the tangle. And there's a lot of records I've worked on. If you listen to them, it's like, there's just this like tangled stew of guitars and it's, and it's like, or whatever. And it's like, I just dig that sound. Um, the minimalist approach of, uh, miking things up, which I kind of came to via my first recording format of my own. Well, I was, I mean, was like one microphone into a quarter inch tape machine when I was a kid. But by the time I was like in college and had like a fancy, uh, four track cassette recorder that it's like, yeah, I can use like two mics on a drum kit and then I gotta that's it. I just gotta move them around and make it sound good. And um but you know, just over time also an understanding of I'm not gonna go into like a deep science nerd here, you know, deep dive about phase relationships and sound, but basically uh the more and more mic microphones you add to a sound source, the greater the likelihood of some sort of cancellation of frequencies. And so I've just always veered towards these relatively simple mic techniques. And then over time when I would see, and then I would hear them and go like, that sounds like drums to me. That sounds good. And then later on, I see these pictures of them like recording Exile on Main Street and realize, man, I have stumbled ass backwards into the way that they did those records and have realized that's because that's what sound normal in my head because I had especially in my formative years, like I talk about getting a copy of the whole album when I was in like my freshman year in college. And so I'm, by the time I'm a freshman in college, like I'm already very actively playing in bands and recording and telling people that I was a record producer because I believed I was one because I had a four track cassette recorder. So, but like the, the, the vibe of that record, I think is just so ingrained in me and I've also used it as an example in the studio, as I probably did with Noel, which probably is why you knew that I love it so much, which is try <laughs> convincing people the thing I just said a few minutes ago, which is that sometimes the wrong thing is the right thing. And sometimes it's just like somebody else is like, well, that's not what I planned on doing. It's like, yeah, but like, listen to what it sounds like. It's like, I know it's fucked up, but it's great. And there is that... Um, you know, there's, there's that. And I just think that that has been like ingrained in me of listening to these, uh, records like that. And maybe there's also something about it to me as a producer that makes it seem, uh, more reachable. That is if you've got true inspiration, um, like I've always been more into greatness than perfection. And I think that people make a mistake hmm. between the two and they're not the same that, um, uh, you know, great's never, great's not always perfect and perfect certainly is rarely great. And, um, it's, uh, I mean, an airbrushed photo of a human being versus 
the natural beauty of a human being is like, it's just like a different, you know, it's a, it's a different thing. And, um, to me, Exile Main Street is just like totally like the sound of it is just like a totally real thing. The production of it, the fact that it's kind of loose, the fact that it's not all the same, the fact that like different people play different instruments, the fact that Jimmy Miller not only plays the drums on Happy, Jimmy Miller just plays the drums on the ending ending of Tumbling Dice because Charlie just couldn't quite get the timing. Uh, there's a lot of people who would say like, well, that's going to sound strange. We can't do that. But in the mindset of these guys in the basement making this record, it's like, hey, hey, give me, the, oh, you just want to take the sticks and just show me what you have in mind? And then they listen back and... Uh, I'm, you know, dramatic recreation of my own imagination here, but, um, it's, uh, ah, you know, that sounds good. Uh, just keep it. Won't Charlie. Mind. No, I don't think he's going to mind. That's fine. It's funny. I've actually had that happen here working on a Dexatine's record where I was, the drummer had gone to the beer store and they were like, what do you think he should do here? And I played this little part on this song. I was like, I think it like something kind of like that. And I came in the control room and they're like, oh, we're, we're keeping that. It's like, well, he could play it himself. No, no, no. He's, we, we don't, he wouldn't want to waste the time, and it sounds fine. Let's just use that. I was like, okay. Is sure. that own thing? S yes. There is a blog called Welcome, or no, called Don't Call It Nothing, and they love Exile on Main Street, and they went, and they for every track on Exile on Main Street, they put a song that they really liked and that they thought, was like a compliment to to the exile track and for um sweet black angel they took own thing and they 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 had that as the, the correlating song i gotta send you the link to it it's so funny. this is it's arguably so the greatest moment of my entire life knowing <laughs> that somebody thinks that something that i had something to do with somehow is worthy of comparison with exile on mainstream I'll, I'll, I'll put it in fourth place behind my three children um, but <laughs> but other than the three of them this moment clearly that owned things that, that I played drums on too. And I had to put in sweet dogs drums or he's lefty. So I had to put a brick on the hi-hat uh, pedal to hold it in place and then had to play it backwards and played it once. And then uh, Elliot and John Smith, when I came to the control, room, were like, dude, don't change it. It's perfect. And I was like, I'm again, paraphrasing them. I'm not suggesting they sound like that, but anyway, yeah, that's, uh, that's a remarkable moment in my life. Uh, Check that one. Bucket list. All right. Well, if an anvil falls on my head when I walk outside today, I'm going to be cool. <laughs> I will I will oh, send man. that along. No, it's a cool piece. Amazing. I mean, speaking of influences, I mean, with this, this interview is going to follow an episode that's set in New Orleans where um, Ahmet Erdogan throws a party for the Stones and he um, he hires a bunch of blues legends to play for them. He, he hires yeah. a Professor Longhair, uh, who else? Roosevelt Sykes, Snook. Eglin, I think. Um, I think there's one more. And the Stones loved it because I'm sure to them they saw it as, you know, paying their respects to the people who really made them made the music that made them want to make music. But some of the people that we talked to today who were also at that party admitted that it was kind of an awkward pairing between these, you know, authentic blues men and these white kids who made a fortune off of their sound. And that led us down this whole really interesting discussion of appreciation versus appropriation. Right. And I was curious, did the Stones lead you to seek out blues artists like Howlin' Wolf or Muddy Waters or Professor Longhair for that matter? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of music I did listen, I, I listened to as a kid absolutely sent me um, back to check out uh, older blues guys, because I would read books about 
you know, all the English classic rock guys, it's all Elvis and, um, American blues guys. Anybody I knew about Elvis, obviously, um, the Allman brothers, same thing. It's like, and so, um, you know, growing up in the South, certainly huge presence on the radio here, um, that all these guys, um, that was their stuff. And you read these books about, uh, uh, Mick and Keith as teenagers trade, you know, it's like, ah, he's got the newest, you know, record by, you know, Wolf or Muddy or somebody, you know, and, uh, John Lee Hooker, whatever. And it's, um, and so, yeah, absolutely made me go back and check it out. And which, you know, definitely led me to Howlin' Wolf, who is, you know, that's my favorite of that, of those guys. And, uh, but knowing there that the influence and the fact that it's so interesting to me that early on, like the Stones didn't, uh, like we're not a rock band. We're, uh, R and B group. And then it's really, it's interesting. It's like by the Jimmy Miller era to me is the beginning of, they just sound like them. I mean, the mid sixties mm -hmm. psychedelic records totally sound like them, but they also are of the time. Right. And all their records are kind of of the time, but Exile on Main Street is a thing that seems like it's of the time now because of all this other stuff that came after it. But there's nothing before it that is really that. I mean, the only thing that kind of leads up to that is other Rolling Stones records. I mean, by that time, it is like the blues lane, the R&B lane, the 60s lane, it's like all they've all merged onto the Rolling, you know, Rolling Stones freeway and uh, <laughs> I Keith, and uh, have just become like its own thing. It's just interesting now to consider the perception of these British bands like the Stones and the Beatles, who were very vocal about their influences. I mean, the Beatles came mm -hmm. to America in '64. There's the famous Maisel's Brothers footage of them calling into radio stations and requesting Marvin Gaye and the Ronettes. They're not requesting yeah. their own songs. They want to hear the music that, again, made them want to make music. Um, and at the time, this was considered very, you know, progressive. But these days, um, you know, these these white kids from England covering a Miracle song or covering a, a Shirelle song or something is, is tantamount to theft in a lot of ways. And you think of the Stones with the early Willie Dixon songs and Chuck Berry covers and stuff. Uh, Robert Greenfield, who's the, the, the Rolling Stone magazine journalist that we're, we were talking to on this show, and we, mm -hmm. we base most of it on, on his book, STP, um, when we talked to him last summer for the interviews for this show, he remarked, many times about how little musical crossover there was in 71, 72, 73, at least in a mainstream sense between black music and white music. I was wondering if, if you would agree with that. Um, how old is Robert? He's older. He's older than me, right? Born in 47, I think. Oh, oh yeah. Way older. Okay. So he's got, a, he, I mean, as in 1972, Robert's 25 and I was about, you know, eight about to turn nine. So he's got a much clearer perspective of this than me. I mean, there is, I mean, on AM radio in Atlanta, there's a cross, you know, it's like Motown and the, and rock and roll are on the same station. But um, there's not a ton of, you know, I mean, there's like, there's not a ton of like, uh, 
of crossover in terms of people working together. I mean, you hear the stories about the Beatles and Jimi Hendrix partying and, you know, <laughs> going to record the, you know, in the middle of the night, which is amazing. Um, the Stones and, uh, you know, you see the Stones on, you know, playing with black artists. Um, but there's really not nearly the the crossover. Of course, the Stones, um, I guess, is maybe the 75 tour that Billy Preston and Ollie Brown are on. Um, but yeah, there's not, you know, I mean, there's white people making music and there's black people making music and there's not a ton of crossover. I mean, the record business there is, you know, there's white guys that work in the record industry that work with black artists, but there's not um, in, you know, the sixties and seventies, but the early seventies, but, um, not so much. And this isn't to like belittle the contribution of people like John Hammond, who of course, you know, signed many black artists and going back to the 1930s. Um, but yeah, there's not the crossover. And as far as like the, uh, you know, appropriation versus, you know, paying homage to things, um, that is taking a modern standard and going back. I mean, there's some things you go backwards in history that are clearly terribly wrong that were done. We know this, but there's other things like saying that people in the sixties that were in heavily influenced by black artists um, shouldn't have done that because it's cultural appropriation is taking a uh, 21st century aesthetic and marching backwards 60 years and telling other people they're wrong for something they don't know. <laughs> um, it's, um, and the influence, I mean, and, you know, in any kind of art, you know, influence is good. Now, the taking of, of songs from old blues guys and nobody getting paid the right money off of it, totally wrong. Never should have happened. But, um, you know, people are influenced by different kinds of music. And uh, it's, um, I understand the sensitivity to it. I appreciate the sensitivity to it. But um, the Beatles and the Stones made amazing music that was influenced by R&B and soul and older blues artists that um, they made great music because they were influenced by this stuff. And as somebody that loves all of those things, the original and the things that were influenced by it. Um, yeah, I am. Um, I mean, I'm glad they're influenced by it because it made great <laughs> records. I'm not going to pretend otherwise. Well, talking about the music that influenced the Beatles and the Stones and, and specifically Exile on Main Street, uh, where do you see Exile's influence on, um, on the future generations post Stones of, uh, of artists? You, would you hear uh, fragments of Exile cropping up on uh, albums and artists today? Oh, yeah. All, uh, all over the place. Um, it's, um, there's, you know, rock, you know, two guitar rock bands like black crows for example you can clearly hear it's like these guys love this record cheryl crow listen to the guitar on if it makes you happy jam which is a great song but you listen to that and it's like cheryl loves the stones obviously when you hear that that guitar it's like totally influenced i mean in a way that's like her tumbling dice. I mean, it's like, it's this mid-tempo swagger with this open-tuned guitar lick. Um, 
and this little double stop part that is um, extremely similar to a song on Rolling Stones album a couple of albums later, but I'll leave that to the listeners to discern which song it is and just keep that inside my brain. But as soon as I heard it, I was like, oh man, she loves that record as much as I do. I bet she and I are about the same age. I don't know her or anything, but uh, um, I love that song. But as soon as I heard it, I was like, dang, she loves them too. Um, there are my guys, the drive-by truckers, you know, with whom I've made a zillion records with. Um, it's uh, Patterson Hood one time uh, referring to his main partner in crime, Mike Cooley and myself said, you know, all three of us fancy ourselves to be exile Main Street guys. He said, I really want to be an exile Main Street guy, but deep down inside, I'm probably a um, sticky fingers guy, Patterson being raised in Muscle Shoals. His dad owned Muscle Shoals Sound. His dad has a bunch of amazing black and white snapshots of the Stones in the studio recording Brown Sugar and uh, Wild Horses, and you got to move. Um, and about me, he said, man, you want to be an exile Main Street side, but when I listened to your bands, you probably were more, as a kid, like more of a Let It Bleed guy. And I was like, oh man, one of the very first albums I ever owned is uh, Let It Bleed. And he said, but Cooley, He's just an exile on Main Street guy. And when you listen to Mike Cooley's songs, if you go through the Drive-By Truckers catalog and listen to Three Dimes Down and Shit Shots Count and uh, Gravity's Gone, these songs are like, okay, that's somebody that writes great songs that's obviously heavily influenced by this album. And I think you hear it, um, I, think, I think you hear it all over the place. Bloodkin certainly has songs like this too. You mentioned uh, my last question. You you, you mentioned uh, Alabama Muscle Shoals. I, I can't think of Muscle Shoals without thinking of the great Spooner Oldham. And uh, oh, you I love an album a couple of years back, uh, "Love It, Don't Choke It to Death," which I believe is a quote from the great Spooner Oldham uh, during a session. I think with Drive By Truckers. It's such a great, succinct ethos for for recording. I was wondering if you had any similar stories from the Stones, from the Stones history that you keep near and dear to your heart. Just either stories from the making of the album, a, a quote you've heard from Mick or Keith or Jimmy Miller or Andy Johns or anybody that, uh, that is kind of something that's on your personal, uh, you know, personal list of credos. Oh, for sure. Uh, and it comes from uh, Glenn Johns. I have this incredible Glenn Johns uh interview from a recording magazine from about 1980 and Mitch Easter gave me a copy of this because Jay Farrar and I were mixing Wide Swing Tremolo at the Fidelitorium. Mitch is amazing studio in North Carolina and I'm actually uh, in its old location when he used to have a board exactly like this one and um, nobody else that's listening to this can see that thing I just patted behind me but trust me folks it's awesome and uh, he um, but this article 1980 is at the height of of Glenn John's fame. Now, in retrospect, we know he has the greatest swath of his career is behind him, but it's um, right now, the height of LeBron James fame in 2023 is right now, even though at 38 or 39 or whatever, the best years of his basketball playing might be behind him. But because we know this legacy, and it's the same thing with Glenn John's in 1980, he is the only person who's engineered sessions with the Beatles, the Stones, Led Zeppelin, and the Who, kind of like the four horsemen of English classic rock, right? And, uh, but mostly built his reputation 
by working with the Stones on virtually all of their records from the mid-60s up through the mid-70s. And um, he talked about in this interview the fact, they asked him about how long it takes to pull a mix together. And uh, he said, I usually it takes me, you know, about 45 minutes to get a sounding good. I'm usually done, you know, maybe about two, three hours. And they said, is that how it worked in mixing Stone's record? He goes, yeah, I do my mix and like that. And then Mick and Keith would come in and they would spend about uh, two days on the song. And then the one that goes on the record is the one that I did in like two hours. I never lose sight of that. So the advice is print the two hour one, hide it, and then let the band pick one apart for a while. And then when they, you play them the original one later and they think it sounds better, tell them it's the one they worked two days on. Maybe kidding. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that goes so counter to the episode where, you know, it's like them obsessing the snares. Got a crack. They sound like dustbin <laughs> lids. Um, that's what uh, um, Greenfield Robert saying, Greenfield yeah. was saying. But yeah, I, and, I don't and it's doubt like that the thing right. is that you obsess over that stuff when you're recording. You obsess over getting it exactly right. And you do obsess over that stuff. But, it's, but Glenn Johns, the guy that has hands on the faders on all these records, that is his approach. And I know people that have worked with Glenn before. And they said, like, the speed of him making decisions was incredible. Which was, like, inspiring to me to realize it's okay to move like that. Incredible, David. Great. Well, <laughs> so thank good. you, guys. This was so much fun. Uh, yeah. Jordan, pleasure to meet in person. Noel, always a pleasure to engage with you on the deeper convos about rock and roll, which we have had many, and I'm sure will in the future. Stone's Touring Party is written and hosted by Jordan Runtog, co-executive produced by Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog, edited and sound designed by Noel Brown and Michael Alder June. Original music composed and performed by Michael Alder June and Noel Brown with additional instruments performed by Chris Suarez, Nick Johns-Cooper, and Josh Thane. Vintage Rolling Stones audio, courtesy of the Robert Greenfield Archive at the Charles Deering McCormick Library of Special Collections in Northwestern University Libraries. Stones Touring Party is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, 
and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.